Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in September of 2021. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who is joined by our returning guest, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Dr. Rasmus is a professor at St. Mary's College in California, where he focuses on inequality and economic crises. Dr. Rasmus began his career in journalism and is the author of numerous books on the political economy, such as Central Bankers at the End of Their Rope, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, and Epic Recession. He has served as negotiator, organizer, and president of multiple local labor unions. He is the host of the radio show Alternative Visions and has contributed to multiple magazines such as the World Financial Review, European Financial Review, and the World Review of the Political Economy. It is worth mentioning that Dr. Rasmus is a critic of conventional economic theory. It is important to consider how his critique plays into his analysis and how the deficiencies of the neoclassical model create hidden risks within the system. Dr. Erasmus is an expert at identifying these hidden risks. Together, we discussed the monetary response to COVID and its macroeconomic impacts, how modern technology impacts communication within politics, and his critique of mainstream monetary theory. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Just one correction. Uh, my latest book, uh, Scourge of Neoliberalism, is uh, from Reagan to Trump. So it's hmm. just up to date. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry for getting that wrong. I, I think I must have picked it up from something published elsewhere. Uh, but anyway, let's start with an issue that I think will resonate with many in Smart Talk's audience. How well the U.S. economy is doing is a pretty personal judgment, I think. For those who have the financial resources to invest in the stock market or in real estate, the economy seems to be doing pretty well, right? Well, uh, it's a mixed picture. Okay. Uh, even for those who are well-heeled, it's a mixed picture. Uh, at the same time, there are millions of people who remain unemployed or underemployed. So I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you to talk about is what do you see as the effect of escalating asset price inflation in the financial markets and other aspects to the employment picture on the real economy and on working people? Well, we, we can start with the uh, asset markets and then talk about the real economy. Uh, they are really uh, two separate pictures. Uh, the asset markets, uh, you know, we're talking about stocks and bonds and uh, currencies and derivatives and so forth are doing quite well. And that's largely, I think, because of the Federal Reserve has been pumping uh, trillions of dollars into the economy, which began uh, in March of uh, 2020. And actually, if you consider what's called the repo market, even before that, uh, $4 trillion about has been pumped into the economy to uh, prevent a uh, financial banking crash that they thought might occur with COVID. The banks uh, weren't really yet in trouble, but it was a preemptive bailout, you might say, which is kind of unique. The first time we ever preemptively bailed out the banks. And when I say banks, I mean not just the commercial banks, you know, uh, JP Morgan and so forth, but I mean uh, the shadow banks, 
investment banks, equity uh, firms, uh, hedge funds, and uh, even private non-bank corporations. They all got bailed out. This was kind of unique for the first time to have the Fed actually do that broad of a pre bailout. And that money has continued to flow into the economy. And uh, the financial sector has done quite well ever since the money flows into stocks and bonds, ultimately. So, you know, the financial side uh, has not been impacted virtually at all here. A a lot of debt has been accumulated. You know, the cash flow and and, uh, the liquidity to service that debt has grown as well. So that's the picture on the financial side. Before we go on, let me ask you a question about that. After the 2008 crash, the Federal Reserve indicated it was going to impose much more rigid stress tests on the financial institutions. From what you've seen and read, are they still adhering to those those, uh, more rigid stress tests or have they backed off on it in order to get the institutions to put more money out into the economy? Well, they've liberalized the stress test uh, ever since Trump came in office. And the stress test uh, originally, uh, you know, you could uh, critique them a little bit. They really only focused, uh, the Fed only focused on uh, the top top banks, a dozen or so. And uh, the stress tests were a little bit questionable since uh, they told uh, the banks before the, the, the test what they were going to test. Right. So it kind of uh, gave the banks an opportunity to move their money around and they're counting around. So it looked like they were doing okay. But uh, the stress tests uh, are are a continuation of the 2008-9 crash. They are not as strenuous as they once were, but uh, they they really only look at uh, the very top banks, U.S. banks. It's kind of more of a way of warning the banks, uh, you know, be careful. We are, we will watch you. It's not really uh, uh, looking at them uh, rigorously here to prevent the crash. But you, you you should understand that this is not like 2008-9. Uh, the banks were not in trouble. Big corporations were not in trouble. They loaded up on cash before uh, 2020 because they knew it was coming. The big big corporations took down their uh, loan lines. Uh, with the banks. They accumulated cash that way. Interest rates were were very cheap. So they loaded up on corporate bond borrowing. Uh, borrowing. So when the time came uh, with, with uh, the CARES Act, which provided for $1.1 trillion of midsize and large corporate uh, loans from the Fed, they didn't take it. Big corporations, medium-sized corporations didn't need it because it came with some strings and they could load up on all all that cash without having to take the government debt, you see. So uh, corporations, uh, except for those in the areas, uh, you know, like travel and airlines and so forth, uh, hotels, leisure, uh, we're not really um, in any danger here with this COVID thing. Uh, and the crash of the economy, uh, the real problem with the crash of the real economy uh, was in the services sectors that had to shut down. Uh, and, and those have been bailed out. Um, but even a company like Boeing, which was eligible for $50 billion, uh, did not take the money from the, from the Fed and the government. Um, they simply uh, raised bonds, issued new bonds for $25 billion, and um, 
you know, we're able to uh, maintain stability uh, throughout the, the crisis so far. So you got to understand uh, that this is a crisis that does not affect the financial system yet. And it's a crisis that really has not impacted large corporations, medium-sized corporations yet. It's mostly impacted small businesses and certain sectors, service sectors, and of course, uh, the labor markets, the, the, the working class. They're the ones who have uh, uh, taken on the real burden of this COVID Great Recession 2.0, as I call it. Explain what you mean by that. I mean, what, uh, for example, one observation that I made is as interest rates have fallen to the floor, uh, the savings of many retired individuals in the United States, not necessarily wealthy retired individuals, has uh, fallen dramatically. And their only option is to take risk by converting whatever savings they have into the stock market because uh, CDs and money market funds are paying almost nothing. So I wonder how, how you see the overall effect on not just working people, but you know, just middle income people generally. Yeah, well, uh, most of the savings and the savings rate is enjoyed by the top 10% of the population, maybe even 5%. Uh, yeah, you may have some median income people with some uh, some stock in their 401k, but they don't. Uh, it's not much, and they don't really uh, transact very much. Uh, so when you talk about the savings rate and, and the amount of savings having gone up, it's mostly for this uh, uh, top tier right. households. Um, and uh, for the rest, of course, uh, there was a big problem, and that's only uh, deteriorated further uh, with. Uh, what savings they have in, uh, you know, savings accounts and so forth. Uh, well over half of the of the population has no savings at all to speak of, you know, less than $400, the, the statistics show. Uh, that was a problem going into this. And of course, this situation has only made it worse uh, for that part of society. And it's part of the breakdown of, uh, of the retirement system in this country in the last several decades, which has been exacerbated here uh, by, by the COVID situation. By, by that, do you mean the movement away from defined benefit plans to 401ks and like? Yeah, that, that's part of it. Uh, you know, when in the post-World War II period, uh, the U.S. set up a retirement system that was pretty stable at the time, uh, a three-stool system that they call the three legs of the retirement stool, one was Social Security that was only designed to provide one third of what you needed in retirement. Right. Another stool was a personal savings. And a third stool was a, what's called defined benefit retirement plans, which were really pretty good plans, but which only really exist now in the public sector. Uh, they've been converted by corporations into what we call 401k plans. Uh, 401k plans uh, have, have really been a bust for most of the population. Uh, it doesn't provide sufficient, has not provided sufficient retirement funds. So uh, you look at uh, two legs of the stool, uh, both the savings rate and uh, the, the defined benefit plans, uh, they're broken. And uh, the one stool left, of course, is uh, you know, what, what you, you may have here with uh, Social Security. And that's why you have so many people who've gone on Social Security uh, early, early, early retirement, 
and uh, it only averages like twelve, fourteen hundred dollars a month, and that's increased the poverty rate and the homeless rate. The uh, statistic that I saw with regard to seniors is that one out of four households headed by a senior live on social security benefits alone. They have no savings at all and no pension. And that's pretty scary. Yeah, that's pretty scary. And it's really a reflection of the fact we haven't had uh, uh, any real wage increases for four decades now, at least real wage increases. Uh, and uh, you know, that's a result of uh, a lot of high paying jobs being offshored uh, since the 1980s. Uh, and it's also a reflection of uh, the near destruction of uh, the union movement uh, and uh, other forces as well. And the increased indebtedness of households trying to make up for a lack of wage increases. Uh, it's a combination of policies um, which have uh, resulted in the lack of real income gains, except for maybe the top 10% of the working population, the civilian labor force. It occurs to me listening to you with the three-legged stool, three stool analysis kind of reminds me of what Galbraith wrote, I think, about something like that. He used the uh, analogy of business, labor, and government as being the legs of the stool. So it's the first time I've heard your your uh, version of the of the story. But a fourth leg might be equity in residential property, and we still have sixty two percent, you know, owner occupancy in the United States, although it's declining. I wonder, you know, I haven't looked at the data lately to see how many senior households are relying on reverse mortgages to try to get some additional income. But uh, I suspect that that's that's one option that some people have if they if they're living in an area where where property values are increasing. Yeah, there are some households that are fortunate enough to have purchased their home. Uh, you know, there's a, a wealth effect there uh, as the value of their home goes up, but that uh, means that the rest of the households who are renters uh, aren't able to get into the housing market themselves. Exactly, they're pretty much locked out now, and the only uh, a real mortgage activity going on is uh, for people who have homes who are buying refinancing homes. Uh, there's some new purchase of homes, but uh, they're high end mostly. And uh, that means uh, you're leaving a lot of people out, uh, which ultimately <clears throat> ends up in, in problems of uh, homelessness and, and uh, uh, rent problems and so forth. Do you see uh, any signs that either at the state level or community levels that that governments are beginning to recognize that they need to increase the supply of affordable housing, you know, for, for their, their residents. Yeah, there's and their some citizens. activity going on at, at a local level. Uh, some cities are trying to uh, provide some uh, affordable housing, but it's really just a trickle uh, given the size of, of the problem. There's a realization of the problem, but they can't seem to come up with a a broad general solution to it in terms of national policy. A re, kind of related issue for, for families and working families that seems to be not discussed is the, or at least it has been discussed in the campaign, but so far it doesn't seem to be discussed on a regular basis is what we're going to do about student loan debt. And the, the data that I've looked at has a surprising statistic 
that a lot of this debt is being carried by uh, older people, not just senior citizens, but parents and grandparents who are taking on responsibility for senior debt, for student debt for their you know, younger members of their family, their children and grandchildren. This, yeah, the student, student debt issue is, is a, really a critical issue here. You know, what is it, 1.5 trillion or something like that, a huge amount. And uh, it's holding back consumption of people uh, who are carrying that debt uh, and playing a role in their inability to get into a, a, you know, the housing market themselves. Um, you know, there's a big forbearance that's been going on in payment of student debt since this COVID thing uh, began. And what you got is a backlog of hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, uh, owed backlogged uh, debt payments here uh i don't see how they're gonna how they're gonna pay that and once the forbearance ends here in january next year uh how is that going to be restructured in terms of their debt uh, is it going to raise the amount they're going to have to pay or are they just going to tack it on at the end of their loan which means it'll go longer um it's unknown unknown uh, how they're going to carry uh, the repayment of that debt load the same thing with uh, the rental uh, market forbearance going on. Uh, I saw statistics at the end of uh, uh, 2020 uh, that $70 billion in uh, backlogged rent uh, would have to be paid somehow. Uh, I don't know how that's going to be repaid uh, by those folks, especially once they're evicted. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can contrast that 70 billion owned uh, for uh, seven to 11 million uh, renters out there. There's about 48 uh, million rental units in the US and maybe 70 some million renters, uh, about 11 million uh, are, you know, caught in this backlog rent, forbearing rent. Uh, how they're gonna pay for it, uh, is going to be interesting. I don't know how that will actually occur, but we'll have to uh, just see how they do it. But you may con contrast that with uh, the 120 billion a month that uh, in virtual free money that the Federal Reserve is giving banks that don't really need it right now. 120 billion a month. Uh, it's been uh, about $4 trillion since the crisis began. Uh, the Fed is saying we're going to continue the 120 billion uh, at least for another 18 months, although that, that may change. Uh, $120 billion a month to uh, sources that don't need it compared to $70 billion or so uh, for renters who desperately need it. It just shows you the lopsided priorities going on right now in this economy. That seems to be in part an ideological struggle over the balance between property rights and human rights. I mean, it would seem that our, in our wealthy society that access to decent housing should be right up on the uh, top of, you, of, of the rights of being a member of our, of our society. And, and it's really tragic that, that our government has not met the challenge. Um, I, you know, I don't begrudge land, landlords, property owners for uh, earning a profit on their assets. But it seems that um, the supply-demand ratio has been out of kilter for a long time, and the private sector just doesn't build affordable housing 
uh, unless it's mandated to do so by such measures as inclusionary, inclusionary zoning or, or other kind of restrictive covenants. But, um, but there's a lot of nimbyism in, in, in our communities. You know, people uh, don't want affordable housing in their backyard. And it, it's kind of, it's remarkable in the sense that many, uh, many people who live in a nice community, their children who are adults and working cannot afford to live close. And so we get the side effect of, of sprawling development around all of our cities because empty farmland is the only place to build reasonably affordable housing. And what do we do? We add to the number of automobiles on the roads at all hours of the day to, and sprawl. And all of that contributes to uh, the next sort of subject I wanted to talk to you about, and that is externalities. Um, you know, economists use the term externalities to refer to factors that, that change expected outcomes from those that are predicted by economic models. And among the most challenging, it seems to me, are the destructive effects of climate change, as well as the global spread of COVID-19's pandemic, which raises the question, really, do the world societies have the financial capacity and the resources to meet these externalities head on? Uh, and is there any expectation of success when everything we've talked about so far has raised enormous challenges for the public sector to, to find the funds, to find the resources? Well, I, I think the societies do have the resources. It's just a question of reallocating them uh, from where they are allocated now. And, and uh, you know, there's trillions and trillions of dollars just in the U.S. alone sitting on the sideline right now. Uh, but they flow in and out of the financial markets mostly. Uh, you know, just look at the Fortune 500 companies since the 2008-9 crash. Uh, they've been providing their shareholders uh, around, an, on average, a trillion dollars a year in stock buybacks and dividend payouts, a trillion dollars. And that's only the top tier of the large corporations. Uh, under Obama, it was like $800 billion a year in buybacks and dividend payouts. Uh, under uh, Trump, it was uh, $1.2, $1.3 trillion a year in, until COVID, COVID 2020. Uh, but I predict that will accelerate back up to a trillion plus per year. Uh, and, and that's only, you know, the top layer of, of, of corporate America. Uh, there's a lot of uh, liquid uh, assets out there. Uh, but to get those assets uh, redirected, uh, you would have to change uh, the tax system. Uh, now, Biden has, during his run for election, has... Uh, indicated how he might do that to reallocate money to uh, climate change and, and other needs. Um, but so far, uh, he hasn't been able to do that. Uh, you could see that in the infrastructure bill uh, negotiations uh, and uh, the backtracking on uh, corporate taxes. And uh, you'll see that continually here on the new negotiations going on on human infrastructure. Uh, where Biden has promised to uh, raise taxes on uh, folks making over 400000 a year and on corporations. Uh, but uh, he will backtrack on that, I predict, as well, if he wants to get anything passed. Uh, because there are strong uh, lobbying interests in Congress uh, that simply 
uh, don't want to raise the Trump taxes, tax cuts, you see. The Trump tax cuts amounted to $4 trillion. Uh, they've been reporting it as $1.5 trillion. But people don't realize that $1.5 trillion was predicated on economic growth of 3.5% in GDP every year for 10 years, the next 10 years after the, you know, 2007, uh -huh. when, when the tax cuts were passed. Uh, and of course, we haven't had 3.5% uh, in just the first year after that. No rule we had 3.5% uh, for the next eight years either. Uh, so that's how you got to the one and a half percent. You know, it's called dynamic scoring in Congress. You know, you you cut taxes, but you say it's going to stimulate the economy so much that it's going to generate more tax revenues coming in to offset the tax cuts. Well, that's a nice in theory, but it doesn't work that way. And it goes to, back to what Art Laffer was arguing back in the 80s, right? Yeah, but that's how they sell it, you see. Yes. Also, the Trump tax cuts uh, really uh, ignored the tax cuts for multinational corporations' offshore uh, uh, income gains. Uh, they they didn't count a lot of that tax cut. Uh, that's why a tax cut was really four trillion and not one and a half trillion. Um, and what uh, all of these fiscal policies of Biden are predicated on is the ability to pay for it. Uh, by raising or taking back some of these massive tax cuts. Uh, but so far, uh, that hasn't been, been possible uh, uh, because there are interests in Congress that simply do not want to take back the Trump tax cuts. And by the way, that's on the Democrat Party side as well as the, the Republican side. So you have this coalition um, that's not uh, in favor of taking back some of those tax cuts and therefore, you don't have a way of really financing the fiscal spending uh, proposals. Uh, now, they, they cobbled together with the infrastructure bill uh, a series of uh, smoke and mirrors, uh, non-tax hikes uh, to pay for the uh, uh, $1.1 on his face, it's really only 550 billion. Uh, but uh, you know, the only reason they got a consensus uh, and got that through was that they did not raise taxes. They did not reverse the Trump tax cuts. They they cobbled together little pieces here and there. Some of them with smoke and mirrors, <laughs> I, th I I would say, in order to pay for uh, the you know the infrastructure bill. Uh, I don't think they have enough anywhere else to pay for the three and a half trillion dollar human infrastructure, uh, Sanders plan, whatever you want to talk about, uh, which includes climate change, which includes elderly uh, assistance, uh, free college uh, right. uh, and, and other other the whole agenda of social welfare benefits, social welfare benefits. Right. That that uh, uh, you, you won't see. Uh, uh, I, I don't think you'll see that pass unless uh, Nancy Pelosi wants to uh, uh, cut it back dramatically. Uh, and I mean by trillions. And uh, if she does that, uh, then you might get a passage uh, of a minimalist bill uh, before the end of the year. But of course, Mitch McConnell is not in favor of that at all. As far as he's, he's concerned, it's done. It's a done deal. And uh, actually, McConnell has 52 votes, if you count Sinema, uh, uh, Kristen Sinema, and Joe Manchin. Uh, he's got who are opposed to this. Yeah, uh, they've got enough to stop any further uh, 
uh, spending on, on social programs, human infrastructure, climate change, whatever. So that's the big dilemma, policy dilemma. Uh, but you got to understand that Trump tax cuts are tied in with the fiscal spending, because if you can't raise the taxes, uh, you can't do the spending. So you uh, conversely uh, reduce the spending so you don't have to raise the taxes. You see, that's what's going on in these uh, policy uh, fights in Congress right now. Or you have to be willing to accept the supply side argument that lower marginal tax rates will generate more federal revenue over time. Which is time. a fiction. Which is so, a fiction. Right. It, has, it has been a fiction. Yeah. I, another aspect to this, I wonder if you've thought about or have a comment in, is the international uh, aspect when you have so many multinational corporations that are operating in many different countries, each of those countries competing for that uh, business by providing, you know, tax breaks and tax incentives. And there seems to be now at least an interest in some sort of international treaty that will equalize the, uh, the tax obligations to multinational corporations. Do you see the United States, given our political uh, environment right now as being willing to accept that? Well, that's a work in progress. And uh, uh, Yellen, you know, the Treasury Secretary and uh, Biden have been able to get the, the Europeans and some others to agree to a 15% uh, minimum alternative tax. Okay. Uh, actually, in Europe, uh, they're paying less than 15% <laughs> already. Uh, so uh, it's kind of trying to get the those those corporations who are virtually paying no taxes at all to pay some taxes. Uh, some corporations are paying more than that. But when you look at the tech companies, uh, finance uh, bank companies, pharma com pharmaceutical companies, and some other industries, uh, they aren't paying taxes virtually at all. Uh, and they're global multinational corporations. So that that uh, move in which the U.S. is taking the lead and Europe is on board and you know, there are some other countries coming on board um, is designed to have these uh, global companies who are very good at uh, avoiding taxes by intra-company pricing, moving their money around on paper uh, and minimizing their taxes in the U.S. and globally uh, to get them to pay something, you know. Uh, but as I said, it's a work in progress and it probably will take uh, several years before you conclude this. Uh, and uh, that's probably uh, too late. Well, certainly I'm thinking as you're talking about the experience that <clears throat> Ireland had of being the Celtic tiger for a while and, and having it implode on them. And, and it seems to have totally backfired that the, the low taxes that they imposed on, on companies that domiciled in Ireland uh, had the effect of driving up the cost of living for most Irish people. And now Ireland is struggling, it seems, to try to find a way back. And from what I read, um, with, with now the problem of the UK pulling out of the European Union, um, it seems like they're in a desperate situation uh, in, in the Irish Republic. Yeah, well, they're one of the holdouts for this 15% alternative minimum tax. And there's a couple other countries in Europe as well, uh, because, as you say, they've been uh, uh, reaping the benefits of, of uh, being the 
the biggest tax cut haven. Uh, you know, a lot of companies not only uh, don't move their actual operations uh, to Ireland and these places, but they um, they do what's called an inversion. An inversion is uh, you move your corporate headquarters to this virtual low tax, no tax uh, environment, and uh, you claim uh, massive tax cuts for your operations, which uh, may be elsewhere in a higher tax. That's called a, a corporate inversion. Pharmaceutical companies and uh, tech companies love to do that. Uh, they're, they're some of the biggest tax avoiders. Uh, it's, it's legal, and I don't see anything... Um, in the Biden administration really wanting to change that uh, big lobbying uh, interests don't want to change that. Well, certainly, certainly the president uh, is from the state of Delaware and the state of Delaware has uh, one of the most advantageous uh, corporate tax structures uh, there that has, has been in place for many, many decades. Um, True. So I doubt if, I doubt if his administration is going to do anything to change that. I, I once read that one out of four state dollars that comes into the state of Delaware comes from those uh, corporations that have their headquarters recorded in one building in Wilmington, Delaware, which is a lot of reason to keep the system in place. Um, very, very strong vested interest to not want to change the uh, tax system. Uh, but that's part of the big problem. Uh, you know, to get back to your original question, there's trillions and trillions of dollars uh, on the sidelines moving in and out of financial markets that could be used uh, to help finance uh, the real economy, uh, to help finance uh, climate change and some of these uh, severe social inequities that we see in the U.S., uh, not just in housing, uh, but in other areas as well. With regard to climate change, you know, one of the uh, most serious problems, it seems globally, but certainly in the United States, is the combination of rising temperatures, drought, and fires. And I wonder how uh, this is going to affect the insurance sector of the economy with all the claims that are being filed. Um, do, you, do you think that we're... Uh, up for perhaps a bailout of, of the insurance companies because of the cost of dealing with these environmental uh, disasters? Well, a good example is here in uh, California where we have uh, these massive fires now for three years in a row. And it looks like this is gonna continue for some, some time. Uh, and of course, a lot of claims uh, on insurance companies uh, but the insurance companies have uh, pretty much uh, distributed the burden uh, across the rest of their uh, customer base. Uh, have, in other words, making their customer base pay for it uh -huh. pretty much. Uh, you know, home insurance rates, uh, even for people who are not in the danger zones in California, have uh, doubled in the last uh, uh, 12, 15 months, virtually doubled. And so they're some more so they're not necessarily pricing for real risk they're pricing for average risk yeah exactly yeah. and the same you could say for utilities like uh, uh pg and e which has been responsible for some of these uh, fires uh there's their uh, the power lines have not been uh, really secured uh and it's been proven they've precipitated some of these fires 
um, they're doing the same. They're, they're distributing the cost, a part, large part of their cost, uh, in order to uh, not have to put the burden on the shareholders, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what's coming out of the state governments, uh, uh, protecting uh, uh, these, these companies uh, to some extent uh, by allowing them to distribute the burden of the cost of this. But, but you can't go on that way uh, forever. You know, the households cannot carry uh, the insurance and the utility burden uh, uh, too much longer, I don't think. Uh, so there are going to have to be a national policy, I think, uh, to deal with uh, disaster insurance. Um, but right now, uh, that's not forthcoming. Yeah, it's a, in my, as I look at the news every day, it's just a scary proposition of how much, uh, how much infrastructure is being destroyed by all of this at the same time as we're fighting over trying to get money to repair uh, mm -hmm. what infrastructure still exists. Um, it, it sort of leads me into a bit of the discussion about monetary policy and the advocates of simply asking the government to print more money uh, in order to uh, respond to the increasing demands and needs for it. Um, is, is that in your mind a, a, a formula for potential hyperinflation? Well, I'm not a big advocate of uh, the argument, the classical argument that inflation is due to too much money chasing too few goods. You know, that comes out of uh, classical economics, uh, you know, just to be a little bit academic about it here, uh, of uh, the 18th and 19th century that believed that money was neutral as far as uh, stimulating the real economy is concerned. It was called neutrality proposition. Uh, in other words, uh, money would only re result, excess money would only result in inflation, uh, stimulating inflation. It couldn't uh, really generate the real economy. The real economy was generated by uh, uh, real factors of production, you know, land, labor, capital, uh, and uh, you, you needed just enough money uh, to accommodate those real, real factors. Uh, and if you put more money than was necessary, uh, that would cause inflation. Uh, I don't believe uh, there's a single cause of inflation, and I don't believe it's a monetary cause, although it's still very popular in academia and some, some corners here. Um, so, uh, you know, inflation... Um, is really a, a, a result of uh, real real factors, I think, uh, not just monetary factors. I, I'm not a big advocate of uh, uh, monetary uh, causes of, uh, of uh, inflation. On the other hand, um, what you do see is a monetary excess money uh, playing a role in causing financial asset bubbles. Not the real economy, but the right. financial asset side of it. Um, you know, ever since uh, we abandoned Bretton Woods in the 1970s and we left it up to uh, central banks, Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, to regulate the money supply as they wished, uh, what we've got, particularly in the U.S. since the mid-1980s, is this constant injection of excessive liquidity money by the central banks into the economy. And uh, that has built up. They inject it, but they don't take it back. You see, it's very hard to take it back. Uh, the money gets out there. It has a multiplier effect. 
And uh, most of it, uh, I, I believe, uh, in the 21st century is going into financial asset markets. It's being diverted into financial assets. And that's why these financial asset markets, stocks, bonds, derivatives, and so forth, are booming. And they don't seem to correct, uh, uh, except very temporarily, and then they bounce right back. Uh, it's really the Fed, fundamentally the Fed's problem that's causing this. Uh, and it's destabilizing the economy because what it does is uh, give a signal that uh, bigger profits are to be made in financial asset markets than in the real economy. So let's, let's put our uh, uh, excess capital into financial assets rather than into stimulating the real economy. Uh, now, we, we do have the real economy growing still in certain sectors. I'm not saying that it's all financial asset uh, you know, diversion uh, going on, but there's, we, we have the two forces that are uh, contending with each other, financial asset investment and real investment. Um, I talked about this in great detail in my 2017 book, Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy. Uh, and uh, predicted that uh, this trend would continue to go on. And of course, it's, it's fed, uh, fed by the Fed, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, but also it's fed by the, uh, the tax system. Uh, you keep cutting taxes on corporations and investors, uh, so corporates uh, are able uh, to distribute a trillion dollars a year, as I talked about before, uh, to their shareholders, where do the shareholders then uh, redirect that, uh, that largesse? Well, wherever they get the best profits, and that's in the financial sector. Uh, so we have this long-term secular trend of the diversion of money capital going into financial assets, in a sense, crowding out, to some extent, uh, the real economy, real asset investment. And it's real asset investment that creates the jobs, that creates the income uh, for folks uh, and for businesses um, and creates the tax base uh, because we don't tax financial transactions, you see. Uh, if we did, then we would solve our, 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 uh, our uh, tax revenue problem here of financing all these new initiatives that we need, be it climate change, be it housing or whatever. Yeah, there have been any number of proposals to put a, a fee on every financial transaction, but in your view, is the uh, structure of our capital gains uh, tax, um, is that a contributing problem because it rewards, it seems to reward gains from rent seeking and speculation over uh, uh, income earned by producing goods and services? from a standpoint of someone who studied Henry George's uh, ideas about tax policy, it seems like what we need to do is get, a, get away from taxing earned income flows and begin to tax income that's gained by uh, not producing anything by the speculation that you've just you know, talked about. We, you know, why, not, why not lump all income into one you know, report when you file for your taxes, forget where the income came from and just apply maybe an exemption for some level of individual income, maybe the national median uh, or something even higher, and then do away with all the other deductions, exemptions, and apply a progressive rate of taxation on everything. It would, 
people like Malcolm Forbes were always arguing for tax simplification, but uh, he wanted a flat rate tax. And I, I think you and I would agree that that would not be just or even economically beneficial. Well, you know, uh, business and policymakers did not adopt the 15% flat tax that uh, Forbes proposed uh, because large corporations don't pay 15%, you see. <laughs> on average, uh, you know, they pay somewhere around 8 to 12% on average. And many well, I'm, of- I'm only thinking about individuals as opposed to, individuals. As opposed to businesses. Although, um, you know, I think it's up to six, six states now <clears throat> impose a graduated rate of taxation on gross revenue. Uh, on businesses. I don't, I don't know the details, but that also seems to me to be a, uh, a better way to capture unearned revenue, or at least capture revenue gained by the large corporate entities. If we really think that job creation comes for small businesses, why don't we reward small businesses and, you know, and, give them the tax breaks and capture more of the tax revenue we need from these large entities that, that benefit by all these rent seeking privileges they have. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when Trump was running uh, for president, uh, he immediately came out uh, with a pledge that he, he would cut uh, corporate investor taxes by $5 trillion. Uh, This was, I think in February or March, of uh, 2016, he, he proposed that. And at that time, uh, I, I, uh, I wrote an article that uh, uh, indicated how much you could get from minimal financial transaction taxes. In other words, uh, a dollar uh, per 1,000 on bond trades, uh, I think it was uh, uh, 10% uh, or, or something like that on uh, stock trades over uh, over ten thousand dollars, and uh, just uh, a couple pennies uh, on um, on uh, transactions uh, buying and selling the four four trillion dollars a day in currencies. Okay, uh, and and that would raise two three hundred billion dollars. I mean that minimal amount of taxation would 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 not discourage the transactions. It's so minimal, but the, the amounts are so vast uh, that you could bring in a lot of money without really uh, discouraging uh, the actual transactions. Uh, but no one wants to go there. No one wants to touch financial transactions because the lobbying interests are so strong in, in that regard. And they, they don't want a foot in the door they don't want anybody to establish the precedent that you can tax financial transactions. Uh, but that's, that's how eventually we have to go if you want to really raise the money uh, to pay for what's needed in the real economy uh, and also to, to put a bit of a damper on, on this accelerating trend in the 21st century of money capital flowing into financial asset investment. Uh, which is now massive because the financial asset markets are really global uh, and uh, many new financial asset uh, uh, securities have been created and the markets to trade these, you know, some people call these derivatives uh, are are global now and they are linked instantaneously with the new technology uh, so that, uh, you know, there's a layer of, of investors I call them the new finance capital elite, global investors, uh, maybe a quarter million of them, 
globally uh, who are really reaping the benefits of these global financial asset markets and this boom in financial asset investing going on. Uh, and uh, that's a problem, I think. Uh, and, and they are deeply embedded in the uh, political systems of uh, Europe, US, and Japan. Uh, you know, the investment banks, the private equity firms, the hedge funds, and so forth are their institutions. Uh, but behind the institutions are the agents, these very, very wealthy investors investing individually or through these institutions that are largely unregulated. You see, you see we've got the commercial banks regulated to some extent, but what we call the shadow banks are virtually still unregulated. And that's where the very rich and the money capital has been flowing. Uh, it's not by accident, I believe, under the Trump uh, that uh, you, you get two big shadow bankers, uh, Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn, running the economic policies of Trump. And by the way, those are the two individuals who wrote the 2017 Trump tax cuts. Uh -huh. They did it behind <clears throat> closed doors, uh, didn't really go through the committees, and uh, they rammed it through in December 2017 through Congress. Mitch McConnell and uh, Republicans controlled the, you know, both houses. They rammed it through. There was very little discussion of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wasn't even budget reconciliation. They didn't need that. Uh, so that's how we got this $4 trillion tax cut. But, you know, why are our, our investment bankers and, and others really running the economic policy of, of this country uh, is an interesting question. Uh, and you can see it in other markets as well. The shadow banks have penetrated the repo market and pretty much running the repo market now. Uh, this is a problem, I think, of, uh, of the new finance, the new finance elite uh, economically getting their way uh, to keep their game going, uh, both economically and politically. And until we do something about that to check that trend, um, we're going to continue having some of the tax and financing problems for the real economy, uh, and we can see it right now. Uh, you know, the infrastructure bill was pared down from 2.3 to 550 billion dollars, 2.3 trillion to 550 billion dollars in order to get it passed. Um, and of course, the 3.5 trillion human uh, uh, spending bill is—I I think it's dead on on arrival. It's DOA. It'll never get through through Congress. Uh, this is a problem because it, the, this kind of expenditure needs to occur, uh, and it's not. I, um, I know neither one of us can predict what's going to happen in the midterm election, but it seems to me listening to you that that is going to be an extremely important point in uh, the politics of the United States that dictates the economic outcomes of the next any number of years. The question is, are there enough voters in the United States who have any sense of the issues that you've raised in our conversation that will cause them to vote in their own real interests as opposed to uh, listening to the rhetoric that's coming out of political candidates? Um, and what we can expect at the, at the voting booth, it seems to me, um, we can have this conversation at, 
after those elections and you would have a really good idea of how good or bad the future, the near future is going to be for us. Well, you know, it's hard to know exactly where, where the country is going in 2022, uh, but I would go out on a limb and predict that the Democrats are going to lose the House. It's already very, very narrow. And uh, typically, you know, in an off election, uh, the party uh, in, in power loses seats. I think there's only like five or six seats difference uh, between the two. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not very optimistic that uh, they'll hold on to the House. Uh, will they hold on to the Senate? Well, there's more Republicans up uh, for election than Democrats. The, that one is a little harder to, to call. Uh, but most uh, of the Americans you're talking about uh, don't make that kind of rational decision. What's in their interest? You know, they make decisions. Uh, too many of them make decisions based upon what the blogosphere tells them. And this alternative uh, fact universe out there is, is very dangerous, very dangerous. And of course, that's a product, I think, um, of uh, technology uh, run, run amok uh, and uh, clever politicians uh, manipulating it. Um, that's a problem in, in the political system that, that we have uh, going forward. And it's not going to go away. Well, let me raise a related issue. I mean, you have a long history of involvement with the labor movement. You were president of a labor union at one point in time. Uh, is labor beginning to wake up to their true interests? Uh, and are working people beginning to return to the idea that they ought to support labor unions as a competing force between big business and big government? Well, a lot of polls show that a majority of uh, workers who aren't in unions want unions. You know, it's a clear majority. Uh, so in a sense, you might say that workers have, have awakened, uh, but the, you know, the leadership uh, is, is pretty timid and uh, doesn't want to take uh, risks in um, too, many, too many risks. I, I think that's because you know, the, the, the union movement as it uh, weakened and declined over the years, uh, which is very significant, uh, it's tied itself closer to the Democratic Party and uh, it always had been, but even closer now. And I don't think they, they want to stir the sleeping giant <laughs> of the workers because uh, it would embarrass the, the Democrats. Uh, they would have to then respond and that uh, would be difficult for them uh, to do so. So uh, uh, is there a renaissance around the corner? I don't know. Uh, it's a mixed picture. Uh, you know, the destruction of, of uh, the unions since uh, the 1970s has been pretty severe due to a lot of factors, you know, shipping jobs offshore, uh, one uh, opening up uh, the open shop in more and more states, uh, a, a lot of factors that, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll write about. Uh, uh, yes, in my younger years, uh, for 15 years, I was the head of a local union uh, in the communications uh, sector. Uh, and then I spent 20 years working for uh, multinational corporations doing uh, research, market research and analysis, some global companies, tech companies mostly. So I've, I've been able to get a, a, a view from both sides of the table, you might say, of uh, what the problem is. Uh, but 
you know, very clearly the destruction of the unions uh, has been a big factor in preventing uh, wage increases and wages being able to keep up in real terms uh, with, uh, with what's going on, uh, you know, in inflation and, and, and the economy in general. Um, we see uh, certain sectors of, of, of uh, workers erupt uh, in, in protests and demands, um, but it's not really being led by the union 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 movement they're kind of way behind the curve i would say in in many ways right now and that and that sort of brings us full circle i mean we've we've talked about the state of the economy we've talked about the challenges not just to our economic system but the political uh implications of, of democracy uh and also the environment uh if you had one message to give to our our listeners today about hope for the future, uh, what would you point to, you know, to give people a sense of optimism that we have a chance of dealing with all these all these challenges and coming out at the other end with a better society? Well, I, I think the general population uh, really understands the problems. Uh, I, I really do. Now, there's a large sector that lives in this alternative fact universe uh, that uh, has right. no, no idea, and they're being easily manipulated. Uh, that's a problem, as I've said. Uh, but the majority of Americans, I think, kind of know what the problems are. Uh, there's a disjoint uh, between uh, what the public wants and public opinion and what uh, their elected representatives are delivering uh, for them. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, in at, at the institutional level, the system level, uh, rather than at uh, the public public level. I think people want something to be done about climate change. You know, significantly, you can see that in the polls. Uh, they want unions. They want housing, better housing. Uh, they want a more democratic system. Uh, which a fight that's another fight going on right now because that's tied into what the policies will be uh, the, you know they they want uh, education uh, they you know they want a better life uh, for their for their kids uh, so you know that's the most optimistic thing I think uh, it's there the change is there at the grassroots uh, the problem is the change does not get translated uh, into policy uh, and uh, that's probably a problem of uh, lobbying and uh, uh, Citizens United and buying of uh, campaigns and so forth, and the drift uh, to the right in the Supreme Court and uh, uh, voter suppression going on at the state level and the gerrymandering that's been occurring for decades now so that you only have 40, 50 seats in the House that are ever really contended. Uh, this is part of uh, the ossification of, of the political system uh, so that it allows a minority, minorities with money, uh, to really dominate the political system, which blocks uh, the pub, public and what they want uh, from getting through and having their institutions deliver for them, you see. Uh, there's, there's no lack of desire for change and understanding of the need for change. Uh, it's that we, we've got these obstacles 
built into now uh, the political institutions uh, that they don't really reflect what the people really want to have done. Uh, special interests are able to block it uh, because, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, to be, be frank, has, has enabled a lot of this uh, with their decisions on uh, money as free speech uh, and on their decisions of uh, supporting gerrymandering and on their decisions of uh, recently uh, supporting uh, the various red states uh, to engage in voter suppression, uh, you know, and, and uh, declaring certain acts and laws unconstitutional, most recently the evictions uh, extension, you know, saying that's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. People should realize the Supreme Court does not have, per the Constitution, the right to declare anything unconstitutional. It's not in the Constitu Constitution that the Supreme Court is an equal, co-equal uh, branch of government. It's not there. It was okay? just created as a by John created. Marshall. Yeah, John Marshall, <laughs> who, who, by the way, was... Uh, Secretary of State for John Adams, who represented business interests, and uh, he was appointed uh, Chief Supreme Court when Jefferson won the election as a way to hold back and thwart the Jeffersonian Democratic Revolution right. that Jefferson wanted to impose. So, you know, you know you, you've got wealthy interests uh, who established a beachhead within the effort to democratize the, the U.S. government even further. And that beachhead has only grown ever since. You know, it was in the late 1870s, uh, where after, after the Civil War, where the Supreme Court really started playing this role of uh, declaring laws unconstitutional uh, and uh, uh, declaring that corporations were persons and therefore had all the rights of persons which is the basis for Citizens United, you see? Uh, if they're persons, then spending money is free speech. Uh, so, you know, especially in recent decades, uh, I, I've got to, uh, you know, point a finger at the Supreme Court and its drift, uh, not in ensuring uh, the expansion of democracy, but in holding back uh, that expansion. Uh, and then, of course, we have the problem of the red states, because of gerrymandering, the Republicans wow. have been able to control the red states and therefore the legislatures and therefore uh, the uh, electoral college and therefore pass voter suppression bills. Uh, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a nasty coalition of forces that have been able to ossify uh, the government uh, to prevent it from really responding to the demands of, of the majority of the public for more democracy and therefore for passing a lot of this uh, legislation and policies that uh, really need to happen. And, and we're kind of running out of time, I think, uh, particularly with the climate change uh, problem and issue, uh, but other problems as well within the, uh, within the country. Um, we're running out of time. Uh, and uh, the big test was, was going to be whether Biden uh, could, notwithstanding this institutional problem we have, uh, actually bring about the policies to change this drift and direction. Uh, so far, uh, you know, although the, the jury is still out on this, uh, um, I, I don't think uh, Biden is uh, going to be able to reverse the broader trend that we, we see. 
Uh, I hope he does, uh, but uh, I'm not too optimistic looking at what's happened uh, here with the uh, the bill here for infrastructure and what I believe will happen with the human infrastructure bill and what's going on in, in the Federal Reserve. Uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, I was cautiously optimistic, but I'm, I'm increasingly less so. Well, what you have given us and, and the listeners to this program is, an, is a, an agenda for those who have an activist bent of many of the issues that they ought to be thinking about and working on uh, as, as they look at what changes are needed in our society. And certainly this kind of a discussion goes on all the time at the Henry George School of Social Science in the classes that I teach and that others teach. And we're hoping that we're reaching people and giving them a sense that while uh, it's going to be difficult we have to work very hard if we're going to actually preserve the extent to which democracy still exists. Uh, historians keep telling us this is a noble experiment and we're still in the middle of the experiment from, uh, uh, from a standpoint of trying to be, bring together people from every part of the world with every different uh, set of societal norms, different religions, different languages, different cultures, to live together under one system of law and, and to guarantee rights to everyone, liberties to everyone, and make it work. Um, you've set the agenda of what we need to be thinking about. I, 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 I really find that to be the essential message of, of what's come out of this conversation with you. So um, I, hope it reaches the, I hope it reaches an audience that keeps uh, growing that uh, people will find your books uh, and read them and pay attention to what you're, you're telling everyone uh, on Counterpunch and, and on your radio program. So doc, uh, Dr. Rasmus, I really enjoyed our conversation. I thank you for spending the time with me and uh, we'll, we'll have to plan to do this again soon and talk a little bit more specific about uh, what some of the systemic reforms are that we think might work if we can just bring about their adoption? Yeah, I would. I would just uh, add. Uh, if people want to follow what I'm what I'm writing about, of course, my website. Uh, but my blog is uh, jackrasmus.com. I write articles there weekly, uh, and then uh, I comment on daily uh, developments in the economy uh, on um, on Twitter at DR Jack Rasmus. So if you want to follow me, you can do it there. Uh, but I would also uh, conclude with uh, uh, the conversation with the words there of uh, Benjamin Franklin, you know, when he, when he came out of the Constitution Convention, they asked yeah. him, what do we got? And he said, uh, a republic, if you can if keep, can it. keep it. Yeah. Uh, I would add uh, a democratic republic, if you can keep it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I focus on policy. Uh, so uh, I have a foot in the economics and a foot in the political side because, you know, policy has to do with both here. Uh, and we've got a, a crisis uh, both on, on the political side uh, that needs to be addressed, the democracy, and it's uh, atrophying. Uh, and we have a, a crisis on the economic side of not enough real investment going into the real economy on an equitable basis. Um, 
And of course, we've got a, uh, a crisis uh, on uh, the health side with COVID, which is not going away. We may, uh, this may be the new normal. We don't know yet, but uh, this is a big problem. This is what I call the triple crisis. Uh, all these three elements are related to each other uh, and uh, they continue to exacerbate each other. Uh, and you need to address all of them at the same time. Uh, if COVID weren't here, we would still have a lot of the problems we have. COVID uh, has only exacerbated these problems, economic and political. And of course, the feedback goes uh, the other way in the other directions as well. Uh, so how are we going to deal with America's triple crisis uh, is, is the key question going forward. Well, hopefully the challenges of dealing with the pandemic and the, the global warming crisis will begin to get uh, people all around the world and our you know, leaders in government to really finally come to terms with, this, with the fact that this planet is all we have. And uh, we need to work together if we're going to uh, sustain, sustain its use, usefulness to us. If, it'll, if we don't destroy, uh, if we destroy this planet, uh, where are we going to go? Uh, Mars does not seem to be open for business yet. And so, well, again, thank you so much. Uh, great talking to you. And uh, I'm, I hope that our audience will, will, continue to listen to you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.